Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Emmaus Way. Um, We are so glad you're with us tonight. Um, Tonight, there is no gathering song, but Mark is leading us tonight in why I am a Christian musician, strike through the Christian. Um, (laughs) We're interested to hear Mark share, but with that, he wanted to start off the night um, with a song that I think was his first song that he sang as a Christian musician, as a teenager. So Mark is going to lead the kids and the community in our, a new community song. Um, so follow him. Hi, everybody. Hi, kids. Can you guys wave at me? Hi. We're going to do a different community song, guys, but I think you guys will know how to do this one. Okay. So all the, this is like a call and response kind of thing. Okay, so I'll sing a line. All you have to do is sing the line right back to me. All right? You can do that? Okay. So it goes like this. Up above my head. I hear clapping in the air. You have to clap. Up above my head. I hear clapping. And I really do believe that there's a heaven somewhere up above my head. I hear snapping in the air. Up above my head, I hear snapping in the air. And I really do believe that there's a heaven somewhere. community song to Emmaus Way. That was really wonderful. Welcome to Emmaus Way. For those of you that are new, um, we are a community that is captivated by the gospel and as a community is trying to figure out and discern what that means as we live life and do life together. Um, A few announcements for our community. If you are new, before I forget that, if you are new, we have a yellow card on this table in the foyer and we would love to 
for you to share your information, but if you have questions or want to get to know us, there's a green card with more information about our community. And you can fill those out and place them in the metallic bowl. Um, and this is a friendly reminder for everyone. Dave Thiessen, since he's in the room, I'm remembering. We love your contributions to help Emmaus Way happen. Um, if you would like, you can put money in the metallic bowl out front. You can also give online. There's a dollar sign on our website. Um, or you can send in money in our address for where you would send it is also on our website. Okay. Two points for me, Dave Thiessen, for making that announcement. Two points. <laughs> We're like staff, right? We have a scorecard. Not really. Not really. But I'm competitive, so if we did, that might be a good idea. <laughs> We're all competitive, so that might be how we get the money announcement in there. Uh, make it a competition, and I will win as long as it's not a sport. Um, other announcements for our community. We are rounding out our summer series. It's hard to believe we are almost through. Tonight, Mark is sharing. Um, next week, our lead team will be sharing on why we are a consensus-based community. Um, it's going to be a really rich dialogue and conversation. Following them, Christine Fulch will be back from her international adventures for the Academy, and will be leading um, Why I'm a Churchgoer. And to put on your radar, on August 14th, we will be ending the series, and that's going to be a night for everyone as a community to really share why I am, however you want to fill in that blank, um, through a community art piece. And no, you do not have to be an artist. Don't have anxiety about that. It'll be really easy and accessible for us all to share as a community of what we bring to this space. So I encourage you to be a part of those. This week, though, on Wednesday, is a can action, and Tim has some information about that. Yeah, just real briefly, almost everybody knows this, but uh, CAN, uh, Durham Congregations, Associations, and Neighborhoods, it's a local, grassroots, nonpartisan organizing community that's one of the primary partnerships of Mayus Way. We do a lot of work with those guys, and CAN works for justice and voice for those in Durham who don't have voice over a lot of fronts, from housing to education to a whole range of things. We have a major action on Wednesday at 515 at Fayette Place. Those of you who have been following this, this is the third and by far largest property that we're asking the city to give um, to us um, uh, for, um, for public housing, not public housing, but workforce affordable housing. Uh, anybody who's moved in Durham knows that affordable housing is very difficult to come by. It's the old projects just north of Central um, and is an incredible location for that. There's going to be a transit stop on the light rail there, so it's going to be fantastic for people who are, you know, just uh, maybe don't make the, the full kind of income that, uh, that Durham typically has. So we've been working on this for over a year. The city council will be there, the mayor, uh, almost all the, the players that be. And we're hoping to have about 300 people there, 150 local residents, as well as 150 from Can partner institutions and you guys know how that works we make pledges so Tim and myself and Molly and whoever's doing that we make pledges uh, in advance so our pledge is 10 so we're hoping that we can not only have 10 but a bunch more than that uh, short people that are kiddos count in the 10 so uh, it's, and it's a great place to see kind of what um, what an action looks like so it's Fayette Place is um, if you go down Fayetteville towards Central 
and turn left on Umstead, you'll see the projects. They look like a bomb blew off there. Literally, it's just a bunch of foundations, and it'll be easy to find 300 people uh, running around there. So please uh, join us 5.15. The press conference will start right at 5.30, uh, but we want to be there and assemble because a lot of times the city officials come early, and we want them to, to see some, some numbers. So We hope you'll join us on Wednesday. Um, we are going to pass the piece, and then Mark and Ben. Ben's going to interview Mark, and our songs for the evening will be interspersed through Mark's story. Um, but first, grab some snacks. They look great. The berries look fabulous. You should go get some. So we're back. I am here. One week ago, I sat on the stool and talked to this community about why I am a fundamentalist, Uh, which, yeah, you can go check out the podcast if you want that story again, but... Because you're not a fundamentalist. Well, not tonight I'm not, because I thought it was an interesting transition in that fundamentalist Ben would have want no part of interviewing any Christian musician that looked like you, Mark. (laughs) Not only would he find you objectionable, he certainly wouldn't want to talk to you in public. But, I mean, that's... so. We've had, we've had this summer series going on for folks that maybe haven't come back from trip or you're, you're newer to a mass way. The, kind of the conceit of the summer series has been um, in a community that deeply cares about individual stories and cares about telling story and community and creating space for that, for people to be honest and to grapple with questions that they have, many of which have come from a long history of, of struggling with faith in one way or the other. We spent the summer listening to First Tim... Then Molly, then, uh, let's see, Jim Thomas, SK, myself, now Mark. Listening to people from our community tell about their history with faith. Um, and that's come in a lot of different forms. Tim talked about his history as an evangelical. Um, Molly and her grappling with process theology and coming to claim that as kind of a way to frame faith for her. Jim as a reformer and someone working with mission. Um, Eske is a contemplative, and I think you've seen a lot of different, a lot of different avenues into and out of those stories. But one commonality is this sort of the things that got us here, good and bad, and what what are we going to do with that now? So I think that's kind of what brings us to you tonight, Mark. Is you have been a Christian musician certainly, and so somehow that got you here. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Well said. Um, yeah. So I guess like it was obviously pretty intentional for me in in sort of framing this dialogue to to do a strike through on the Christian part because it's it's um, at least sort of on a musical level it's it's not a, a title or a nomenclature that that I would claim at this point anymore and it's not one that that. For me, at least, it's not one that makes a whole lot of sense for me. So, um, so that was obviously a very intentional thing to sort of put a strike through on that. I wanted to gesture towards the idea, but to not claim it as something that I would say is an essential part of my identity at this point um, in terms of using that as an adjective to describe a certain kind of music. But, you know, I mean, I guess to, to briefly say, like, why am I a musician and sort of like how did that whole thing start? Maybe that's a place to go. Um, but I think before we get there, there's a couple of questions we wanted to ask. 
to yeah. kind of get other people talking. It's good to start with a question. It's always good to start with a question. So, I, um, so my question for all of you is sort of like, tell us a little bit about sort of your experiences with what might be known as Christian music. And, and we obviously are a community that does a lot of, um, we break things down a lot. Um, we all have come with different experiences, and some of those experiences have been negative experiences with with these sort of cultural markers of Christianity. But so you may have some that are like embarrassing stories of your interaction with Christian music. But in all honesty, you may have very um, heartfelt, great experiences too. I know that I I certainly have had those in my life. So just anyone tell tell us a little bit about sort of your understanding of the term Christian music, what your experience with it is. So when I was in when I was in college, I kind of grew up, or I, when I was in college, it was a very evangelical setting. But my roommate in college said one day that I don't understand why God gave all the non-Christians the musical talent. <laughs> Quite literally, why should the devil have all the good music? That's 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 what Larry Norman said. When I think of Christian music, I think of that. I think of that saying, and like just how like the genre of Christian music is not. I don't know. It's. There, there, there's, there's, <laughs> there was nothing you could do to refute that statement, basically, right? Like, you just. Well, okay, fine. There's an Andy Brogan story on this, too. Uh, moving back from San Diego, uh, he and Anita, and it was a small church. You know, we were in the old space. Um, and, you know, all these amazing professional musicians that we have who work, if you don't know kind of our system here, we, we work with uh, working professionals. So when Mark is here as our lead artist, is working with three or four people. If you don't know them, that's kind of, they make their life in music. And Andy came back and said, you know, it's church. He hadn't been around in a while. It's small. He's like, the music is really too good <laughs> for us to go, because the sense was, yeah, hey, maybe it might be embarrassing, but you know, well, yeah, was, yeah, I mean, the church was too small for how good our music was. Yeah. Other yeah. <laughs> thoughts? When I first got saved, um, Keith Green was a real big, big um, musician that I listened to a lot, and probably a lot of you've never heard of him before. So I'm dating myself, but. Um, he died shortly after I came to Christ and had listened to a lot of his music. And it was a real tragic thing when that happened because he had a, he had a way of putting out a message with uh, no, no compromise, no, um, you know, he didn't make any, I don't know, he just had a way of just saying it like it is. And um, anyway, if anybody has never heard of him, you should look him up and, or look up his music and listen to it. It's pretty impressive. Absolutely. Yeah, Keith Green's big influence on me early. I'll, I'll mention that later. Other thoughts? So, for Cam, I think of Christmas temporary music as something very much part of evangelical culture, but um, it was kind of almost rebellious in, in my Methodist church in South Africa when we started actually using guitars, only in the evening service, not in the morning, <laughs> organ in the morning, piano, and that guitar stuff. It, I mean, so that fight wasn't, it wasn't the fight between that worldly music, it was between this new stuff, which the older people in the church looked on with a lot of suspicion and hostility, maybe rightly so, but not for the reasons that they chose. They chose, you know, we've always done it this way, we prefer hymns, and 
but you don't come to the evening service anyway, so who cares? And so that kind of that weird feeling that this was halfway to us all dressing in black and having an electric guitar. I mean, so it's, it's a strange place to come in and then like, look back to it now and think, geez, it really was very much this very cultural, culturally safe phenomenon. But somehow it first came through. This was, this was pretty like radical stuff because... Was Christian music, but it was actually, you know, not 200 years old. Yeah, there was a church I went to for a, a couple of years at least that I remember when they first brought a drum kit in, and it was like, oh man, like that really blew it away. But they they put like one of those little plexiglass shields around the drum kit. You know, it's like, can't let it get too loud. Like, let it come in. Keep the devil in. Yeah, we'll keep it right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for me, uh, you know, I see Rich Mullins on here, so my first encounter was with someone singing uh, a Rich Mullins song, If I Stand, was the song. And uh, it's like, if this is Christian music, then it's not so bad. <clears throat> and so I decided to go to our local Christian bookstore, which was um, called Mardell's. It was an adjunct to Hobby Lobby. Lord Lane's there. And uh, it, for me, it was a window into the whole commercial subculture of the evangelical world. So it's a place where they had the Thomas Kincaid portraits. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you know, Lord's Gem t-shirt. He's the, he's the painter of light. He's the painter of light. That's <laughs> all I <laughs> But also, like this, I remember this was a time of CDs, right? They had lined up like nine CDs and with, with a CD in each one. What, nine CD players with a CD in each one. Headphones. And sort of a descriptor that said, if you like uh, Alanis Morissette, yeah. try Rebecca St. James. If you like Nirvana, try Third Day. Uh, so it was as, as this sort of commercial replacement that these things that you consume in your daily life, you want to identify as a true Christian, then you all start consuming this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah, I don't think we can sum it up better than that. Yeah, that's great. Everybody, thank you. Yeah. That was wonderful. I, I mean, I would so I intersect here briefly, just this kind of like Mark striking through Christian musician. It feels like this really prophetic statement. But I think um, as someone, I mean, I grew up fundamentalist, but I went to, a, I was a music major in evangelical Christian college. And I think one thing that I discovered there in spades very quickly was how important and vital and contested this Christian musician, Christian music idea really was. And I think that, as we're seeing, some, some of what Brandon's saying, some of, I mean, I think Joy's coming, you know, the, the idea that there should be a Christian music that we could love and celebrate is such a powerful idea. And then yet, that always seemed, that term somehow seemed to be halfway about that notion and then halfway about this nasty internecine, like, you know, um, inbred discourse around what art could be. And that somehow, anytime you're really going to, you want, people want to argue about what Christian musician means, you get both those things all wrapped up into one. And so it becomes a really nasty conversation really fast. In, in a sense of which it starts to make perfect sense why anyone involved with it might want to cross through that thing. Yeah. So I think that just, just to say that, to recognize that, I think what we're going to get tonight is Mark's story with this really big 
cultural movement and understanding that at the same time was pretty constrained and contextualized around people who really wanted to fight about what Christian music was. Mm. And yeah. so, and that maybe that was about as hard to define as defining what a Christian was to those same people. And they were probably about as effective in defining Christian music as they were in defining what a Christian was. Because yeah. it kind of depends on who you're talking to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, but anyway, we're talking about you. So no, no, no. <laughs> We're talking about big ideas, which are much bigger than me. So, yeah, I mean, I, so I guess to start, like, to start off by saying, you know, I, I started playing guitar when I was in seventh grade. Up until the day I picked up a guitar, I went home from school every day and played basketball for every single day. And then in seventh grade, fall, I picked up my mom's classical guitar that she had, and I maybe picked up a basketball five times in my life since then. You know, it's like, like guitar became my thing. Um, and I didn't know anything about Christian music at that point. Like, that wasn't something I knew anything much about. Um, but I got really, really into singing and playing guitar. And so I, I learned to sing by listening to Motown. Um, on I, I had a, it wasn't even a Walkman. It was like a Panasonic version of the Walkman. It wasn't even a Sony Walkman. It was just like a Panasonic uh, thing with tape player. And I would, as soon as my parents were asleep, they thought that I was asleep. And as soon as they were asleep, then I would like put my earphones in under the covers in bed in my room. And I would listen to Motown and practice like singing Motown. Um, that's kind of like where I started singing guitar. Um, then I would come home from school every day and I, and I played Beatles songs. I had this big Beatles uh, songbook and I would just play Beatles songs all the time. Um, but the first like tape that I owned, cause we didn't, this was, there were no CDs. There was no internet or CDs or anything like that at that point. So th- these were cassette tapes. Um, and I, the first tape that I had was a Keith Green tape. It was actually a Keith Green But before I even had a Beatles tape, I had a Keith Green tape because my older brother um, was a fan of his. And so I had, I had a Keith Green tape. I also had another tape by a guy named Leon Patillo. I don't know if anybody would remember Leon Patillo. Similar era. Um, I listened to those, and then I started listening to Motown, and then I started listening to the Beatles. My parents, uh, my parents grew up in the, or in the early and mid-1950s, so they were big uh, Elvis fans. So I listened to Elvis all the time. Um, and that was kind of like my thing. That's, that's kind of like I started playing, and by the following summer, the summer after my seventh grade year, going to a Christian camp um, would have been, you know, like six months after I started playing guitar, I would have led that first song that we did with the kids. Like that, that would have been how quickly it would have been like I was in front of camp helping lead a song. So it like very, very quickly, this like music leading, playing in front of people, singing, trying to get other people to sing along. Uh, was something that was very, very formative from my earliest, like, earliest experiences of playing or performing music. So, yeah. So that's that's the birth of the musical mark. So the birth of the Christian mark, right? Like you, so you talked some. We talked a lot in, in prepping this about you have these two sort of histories, and it would be easy to say like, well, Mark musician plus Mark Christian equals Mark Christian music. But you you kind of want to pull those histories apart a little bit, I think. So like, yeah, that's true. And I want to thank Ben because I would go, like I would just like start talking about something that doesn't. It's not related in any way. I would tell some ridiculous story. So thank you to Ben for keeping me on. He on says track. as if he won't do that anyway. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm still going to do it. I'm totally, like, I'm totally going to do that. But I'll just be responsible somehow. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. Because I I would view that more for me at least as more of sort of a dialectic. I mean, it's more of a, a, a circular or cycle kind of a thing where I grew up in church. Um, 
I was kind of a nerdy, kind of like Tim, I was a nerdy Bible kid in the sense that like, I, I loved going to Sunday school. I loved reading the Old Testament. Um, you know, like I was kind of that, that kid. Um, that's the hard stuff. Yeah, that's right. That's the, yeah, you don't get off that easy. Like you get onto that, but you don't get off of it very easily. So yeah, so that, that was like, somehow that was kind of going alongside of music for me when I sort of added music to the mix. I didn't realize at that point that there was a way to sort of do both things. It sort of felt like music was one world, especially by the time I was listening to the Beatles and playing them. That felt like one world. Church world felt like a different world. And sort of, to some degree at least, sort of never the twain shall meet. You know, to to some degree, those worlds were parallel but not convergent. And I think that that, yeah. So we, we, we stumbled upon... Yeah, tell them about the CD rack because I think this is a really good analogy for, for yeah, me. yeah. So, you know, once I started collecting CDs, I, I was I, I was middle school and my parents started giving me an allowance. I had an allowance of twenty dollars a month, which is pretty good allowance, and um, it was for like keeping my head down in school, doing a good job, doing some chores around the house, that kind of thing. And what I figured out, there, the record bar was a place up at the corner, up at Cameron Village in Raleigh. There was the, the record bar, and it had CDs in it. CDs came in these long cardboard cases then. They, didn't, they weren't just like the, you know, now they don't even sell CDs, but you know what I mean. So, like, the record bar was a thing. I would go, and I figured out, um, even though I was an English kid, not a math kid, I could do enough arithmetic to figure out that with 20 bucks, I could buy one CD this month. And then next month, I'd be able to buy two CDs because CDs were like $12 to $14. So it was like I would have eight bucks left over. So next month, I'd have $28. And I could, so I didn't buy anything else. I only bought music. It's all I spent my money on. And I quickly started amassing all these like Beatles and um, Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke and like all these wonderful people that I was like collecting CDs of. Somewhere along the way, through the Christian camp I went to, I got introduced to Christian music and found out there's this thing. Um, there was this thing, Amy Grant, and there was this thing, like, yeah, Molly's, Molly's like, in the tank for Amy. Um, and then there's, like, uh, Michael W. Smith and Stephen Curtis Chapman. And then later, I'll, I'll get to this, but later I found Rich Mullins, and that, that was a huge deal for me. Uh, and to this day, Rich is a big influence for me. But, but I, I started getting these Christian CDs also, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do with those in my CD rack at home because I had John Lennon singing about LSD in Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and I had Amy Grant singing pra- Sing Your Praise to the Lord. Those cannot go Come on the on, same. They can't go next to each other in the CD rack. That felt, somehow, that felt crazy to me. You couldn't do that. So they had to somehow be divided. Like, I had to somehow have a Christian music a divider with the Christian music on one side and the secular music on the other side. Somehow that needed to be separated from me. And t- it seems to be like Brandon's Mardell story, taken home, and then you have to live that out, right? Because yeah. you were like, oh, these are totally different things. They have been combined by these Christian people, but there's still this other thing out here, and I like them both, and so what am I going to do with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, that, that feels like, I, I, to me, I imagine, like you said, raise your hand if you've had that sort of experience, right? Raise your hand if you had this. Like, that's a fairly, somehow we lived in a subculture, many of us, that created that impulse and, like, forced us into that, in that bind. So then, this is, your, this is your CD collection. Yep. 
then you're you're performing. You know, you 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 start performing more music. You see Christian music as a thing. Maybe let's talk a little bit about as you're introduced to this industry mm-hmm. that's creating this Christian music. Like a little bit about the background of that it, it, for your for you, yeah. how you received it, that sort of thing. Yeah, I I think maybe this is the appropriate time to tell this part. I guess, but. But sort of, I would sort of like roughly divide Christian music as a thing into sort of three eras or three phases um, of its existence. The early like phase one Christian music was Keith Green. It was Larry Norman. It was Randy Stonehill. It was early Phil Kagey. It was um, Rez Band. Absolutely. And they're a perfect example. They came out of the Jesus movement. They were in Chicago. Um, but but most of these folks were in California. Um, and so, like, it had a strongly countercultural element to it because it came out of the Jesus movement. It came out of these hippies who had, like, decided that, that Christianity made some kind of sense to them. And so this music is kind of born, you know, out of hippies picking up guitars and playing music and trying to incorporate psalms and stuff that they were reading into songs. And it had a strongly countercultural uh, message to it. So that lasts really until sort of the early 80s, like right around 1980, 81, something like that. Um, And then you have, not to be too reductionist on this, but then you have um, this sort of young woman, Amy Grant, show up who grew up uh, in Belle Mead, part of Nashville, which is um, a very, very nice neighborhood in in Nashville. She knew the people that were in Nashville. um, and, And Country music was obviously a thing in Nashville, but increasingly there was this presence of these people who were doing music like this. And so as this countercultural Christian music thing um, starts to make money, quite honestly, like to be crass about it, like as it started to move units off shelves, it suddenly became a thing of people saying, wow, maybe we could monetize this. Maybe we could do something different with this. Maybe people, maybe there are enough people that want to buy this that it's worth us investing in, in this. So in the 1980s, you kind of have this thing. Amy Grant in 1982 puts out Age to Age. It goes platinum. It's the first platinum album. Um, sells over a million copies. And suddenly by that point, you have all these mainstream quote-unquote record labels who are saying like, wow, you know, we have a platinum album on our hands here. We need to figure out how to buy into this. So then you have the birth of like, you know, Anybody remember, did anybody's churches growing up have, like, um, tracks? Do you remember these things? You could go to a Christian bookstore and buy a tracks. Yes. X. Yeah? Yeah, they might have. Was it tracks? I, I don't think so. Oh. It's too hip-hop. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Hip-hop. Yeah, right, right. Rappers delight. But not, like, not paper that. tracks, right? That's my people. That's right. People. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> it's very different, right? It's good that you've made that distinction, for sure. Um, for, me, for me, you know. <laughs> So I get it straight. Um, yeah, you could buy these things. You could go and buy an instrumental tape that would have, like, Amy Grant's father's eyes on one side of it and, like, Michael Levy Smith, Friends Are Friends Forever on the other side. But it would have the vocals out of it. It would only have the music. So you could go to your church and you'd hand it to the guy at the soundboard and he would press play on the thing and you could stand up in front of your church and sing one of these songs. So, like, this whole thing starts blowing up. And the Christian right as a political movement becomes a thing. Um, the you know moral majority. This whole thing starts happening, and and really quickly, like this Christian music thing becomes an industry. It becomes a money maker. It becomes an economic model. It becomes a political movement. It becomes 
a safe place for like you, you can your kids can come and listen to this instead of that. Um, it, it really turned into this enormous thing in the 1980s, and you have this thing that explodes. Yeah. So that's that's like point period one, period two, and I think that gets us at, I mean, for tonight's purposes to Rich Mullins because I think for you. You're very much coming of age in this kind of second period thing already existed. You know, that's the Christian music industry you were introduced to on your CD rack. And then, you know, even within that, though, obviously there's some differentiation, right? And so, yeah, to maybe talk a little bit about how rich sits for you in that. Yeah, like, because, maybe this is because my first contact with this kind of music would have been Keith Green. Um, it, it, it may well be that that's sort of where some of my countercultural, some of my ideas of that music could be countercultural. Um, there are ways that I've always kind of been a contrarian at heart. Like there, there are ways that that's just, you know, part of who I am. My dad bought a beta VCR instead of a VHS VCR. Like we, had, we, we always had like this sort of streak, you know, running, running against the grain a little bit, I guess. Um, but uh, I hadn't thought of that in a long time. You remember Beta? You remember that? It had better picture quality, so that was why we had it or something. But um, anyway, so yeah, I was kind of always attracted to to this sort of countercultural moment of it. And Rich was sort of like, by the time the dust had settled in the 1980s, he was sort of one of the few voices left that I think was countercultural, even though he had not been making music in that first phase. He he was saying things, and he was not afraid to say things that were pretty challenging, you know. Um, I pulled out a few quotes, in fact. Yeah. Because some of these, like, I, I, I sort of went back and, and pulled a few out that I used to listen to interviews with him, and, and he was somebody that just, like, it just, the way he saw the world was very, very different than the church I had grown up in, and it was very, very different than the messages I was hearing at Christian camp in the summertime where we would perform The Champion by Carmen every year. Do you, anybody remember Carmen? He was a thing. So, like, we would do this. Yeah. So, anyway. So, like, Rich was doing something really, really different than that. Um, and some of his ideas, I think, are, are still very, um, very important for me. So, this is a, a couple of quotes by Rich. Here's, here's this first one. He says, it's so funny being a Christian musician. It always scares me when people think so highly of Christian music, contemporary Christian music especially. Because I kind of go, I know a lot of us, and we don't know jack about anything. not that I don't want you to buy our records and come to our concerts because I do but you should come for entertainment if you really want spiritual nourishment then you should go to church so I I was like wow that's fantastic that just like yeah Um, and then here are two other quotes that became very very important for me I take comfort in knowing that it was the shepherds to whom the angels appeared when they announced Christ's birth Invariably, throughout the course of history, God has appeared to people on the fringes. It is nice to find theological justification for your quirks. And then this one. I love this one. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. And this is what I've come to think. That if I want to fully identify with Jesus Christ, who I claim to be my Savior and Lord, the best way that I can do that is to identify with the poor This, I know, will go against the teachings of all the popular evangelical preachers, but they are just wrong. They're not bad. They're just wrong. Christianity is about learning to love like Jesus loved, and Jesus loved the poor, and Jesus loved the brokenhearted. 
So we can start to see in these quotes, I think, it, there's this, this core like CD rack conundrum, but then you have this really prophetic voice coming out of what is already a very economically interesting industry. So yeah, maybe that, that takes us right into the song you got here. Yeah. So one, one interview one time that, that I heard from Rich, he was, uh, he was saying that he, he was talking to like a fan after a show and, uh, and this fan uh, told Rich, this fan told Rich like, hey, I love your music. I love what you're doing with it. I love what you say in your songs. And so we took one of your songs and used it uh, in a protest. And Rich said, wow, this, is, this sounds great. Like, I'm really glad to know that it, it, you could use it to mobilize in some way. And, he, and so Rich said, well, what were you protesting? You know, hoping it was something really good. And, and the, the guy told him, he said, we were protesting the movie, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ. <laughs> and, and so Rich said, uh, Rich said, you know, he said, you know, I, I, I played dumb with the guy because I'm not, I'm not as dumb as I sound sometimes. So I, I played dumb with this guy. And I said, oh, you know, why are you, um, you know, why, why were you protesting that movie? Um, and the guy said, well, gosh, haven't you heard? Like, this is a terrible, terrible movie. It, it actually treats Jesus like he was a man. And so Rich said, wow, man, that is that is really, really weird because I thought that that was the good news. <laughs> and then he wrote this song after that. He was a baby like I was once. He was crying in the early morning. He was born in a stable Lord. Memorial is where I was born. They wrapped you in swaddling clothes. Me, they dressed in baby blue. But I was 12 years old in the meeting house, listening to the old man pray. I was trying hard to figure out what it was that they was trying to say. That you were in the temple. They said you weren't old enough to know the Did the little girls giggle when you walked past? Did you wonder what it was that made them laugh? Did they tell you stories about the saints of old? Stories about their faith? They say stories like that make a boy grow old. Stories like that make a man walk straight. And you was a boy like I was. Was you a boy like me? I grew up around Indiana. You grew up around Galilee. If I ever get to grow up, Lord, I want to grow up and be just like you. Did you wrestle with a dog and lick his nose? Did you play beneath the spray of the water hose? Did you ever make angels in the winter snow? Did they tell you stories about the saints of old? Stories about their faith. They say stories like that make a boy grow bold. Stories like that make a man walk straight. 
or get scared playing hide and seek? Did you try not to cry when you scraped your knee? Did you ever skip a rock across a quiet creek? And did they tell you stories about the saints of old? Stories about their faith? They say stories like that make a boy grow bold. Stories like that make a man walk straight. Yeah. That really made you screw up and be like you. behind that with this one I mean I think this is not a song I knew before you know prepping for this week and this line uh, yeah did they did they speaking from Jesus's perspective did they tell you the stories about the saints of old stories about their faith stories like that make a boy grow bold stories like that make a man walk straight I think it really struck me as part of the series like that's how radical that idea is if the idea of listening to our faith journeys and their complexity sounds right, imagine abstracting that back onto the person of Jesus, right? And you get to some sense of really, like, it's a real prophetic edge there, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly in the, in the space that Rich is working in. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, I, like, I, it was important to me. I mean, I haven't, I haven't played that song in 15 years probably until this week when I thought it's not even one of my top five or ten songs of his, but, but it, to me, illustrated something. Like, it illustrated something of this... Um, Rich was never afraid to sort of poke his finger a little bit, you know, to poke it in somebody's eye just a little bit or sort of nudge him in the side a little bit just to say, like, yeah, but have you thought about this, you know? Um, I remember in another interview him sort of railing against Richard Nixon, and and for me, hearing that um, in high school, it felt like freedom in a way because it felt like, okay, there was something that didn't feel right to me about Richard Nixon. Like, there was something... What was it? What was that guy doing? There was something that didn't feel right about it, but having like someone who was a Christian musician who was saying like, "Yeah, that was that was bananas. Like that stuff was crazy." You know, that it it felt like freedom to me in a way. So that's Rich Mullins, and that's like some sort of continuation of these prophetic roots of contemporary Christian music. But it wasn't all like that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, I'm right. Although Good. I will say one more thing about Rich real quick. Oh. And I could talk all night about him, but but. Um, my emotional connection to him was so strong. Like I, when Rich Rich died in a in a car crash when he was forty two years old, which is how old I'll be next year. Um, and he died in a car crash. And I later on got to know the other guy who was in the car with me who did not die, uh, Mitch McVicker. I got to know Mitch later and played some shows with him. But but when Rich died, like the, the day that I heard the news, uh, he died on a Saturday night, and I heard it on Sunday morning. And um, the day that I heard it, I mean I. I would say that to this day, I, I cried more uh, when Rich died than when my own father died. I mean, um, and, and that says something about the complex emotional relationship that I had regarding my father, of course, too. Um, but it shows that for me, this was not just a head game. Um, for me, I felt like I had skin in it, you know, in a way. Like, it, there, there was such a strong and powerful emotional connection for me. I learned, I learned to play the hammer dulcimer because of Rich and, you know... He, he moved me in a way that, that music prior to that had not. Yeah, thanks for adding that. Because I think it, that detail gets to this sense of, that's, that's the setup. 
And then, you know, you get into, you, you join this industry, right? I mean, you're, you're listening to Rich Mullins at some point as someone who's actively touring, performing, going to churches. Mm-hmm. You're, you're learning stories about Rich from people that have spent time with him in those same circles. And I think it's at that time to listen to you narrate this, you start to discover some of that up against some of these real tensions in the Christian music industry. And to talk about this, like, we talked about this Dove Awards moment that's, you know, yeah. where the Dove Awards, the Gospel Music Association's Awards, the best Christian song of the year, and eventually they're up against these songs, these kind of boundary cases. So maybe, yeah. yeah. So, like, yeah, I mean, Amy Grant has an album called Heart in Motion that goes, uh, her song Baby Baby goes to number one. Um, you have Michael Louis Smith, who has a song called Place in This World that goes to number one on the adult contemporary charts, on billboard charts, and stays there for nine weeks. Um, you have um, eventually Sixpence, None the Richer, who Dale, that plays drums with us a lot here, you know, Dale is the drummer for Sixpence, and, and um, you know, they have a number one hit with a song called Kiss Me, and, and uh, Jars of Clay. I mean, all these people that were, like, having what we would call crossover success. And so the, the Gospel Music Association that puts the Dove Awards on, basically like the Christian Music Grammys or whatever, like they're sort of faced with this conundrum, right? Of like, so we've, we have these artists who clearly are successful enough to play on regular radio, right? And so like they're, they clearly are like, these are exemplary musicians, but somehow what they're doing doesn't feel like what we call Christian music. And so how do we give them an award? It's this sort of like, how do we not give them an award, but how do we give them an award at the same time? Like this, they're crossing boundaries that we didn't know we had to figure out before. So in like 1999 or so, um, I think it was somewhere in there, um, the Gospel Music Association gets together and says, okay, we got to define what Christian music is. We got to define what a Christian song is because we have to have criteria by which something gets in or out. So they come up with this list of things that a, that a song has to have, which means that they can exclude uh, these Amy Grant songs, these Michael Deusman songs, these, you know, whoever. So it, it just means that they're, they're having to make really hard boundaries and really hard decisions. And so you can imagine, like, yeah, I can imagine, as you're an artist trying to create into that space, like this, yeah, it's, it's, it's immensely problematic thing to try and do. And I think yeah. throwing in this, you throw in this Mark Cohn song, I think will transition to that. Because, yeah. like, it seems as if this was maybe an exemplar for you of the type of song that was not that was out of bounds. Yeah. You weren't going to win a Dove Award for this. Not right. to say that Mark Cohn is a Christian artist, right. but it sort of exemplified that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Mark Cohn is culturally uh, culturally Jewish from New York City. I started listening to him in high school, um, so it was you know later that I, I yeah exactly. I think this song like exemplifies something about it, even though it wasn't a song that happened to me at the time that this decision was happening with Gospel Music Association. But the main thing is, yeah, as a writer, it started to make me see, like, oh, so there are some topics you're not allowed to write about if you're going to stay in this industry. Like, there are some things that you can say, some things you can't say, some topics you can talk about, other topics you can't talk about. You can use these words, you can't use those words. And that's a terrible place to live as a creative person, you know? It's a terrible place to live as a creative person. So this, this Mark Cohn song, for me exemplifies in certain ways of like what side of the divider are you supposed to put this one in your CD rack like (laughs) this song is not it doesn't fit like Christian music but like it is a beautifully gorgeous song that that really talks as you'll see like talks about your unborn child I mean like this is an absolutely gorgeous song but what are you supposed to do with it where do you put it in the CD rack 
I also wanted to do this because this is my last chance to do this song before I have my first child, so figured this is like a, the only chance I would get to do this. Mark, uh, Mark Cohn, uh, the, if you know his music, you probably know uh, Walking in Memphis, which is, was his big hit. Um, but he continued to write music and still writes today, and I think he's, he's one of my favorite songwriters of all time. I think he's um, an absolutely stellar artist. Uh, and this song was off his second album, which is called The Rainy Season, which is a great, great album.
Thanks, Mark. So I, I hope at this point, sitting there thinking about it, it feels like we've set up a pretty good sense of this tension. Because, I mean, those two songs, the, the Rich Mullins song and the Mark Cohen's, they're not, they, they're quite different. One's specifically about the person of Jesus, one's a father reflecting on it. But this, this sense of trying to grapple with the tradition of, of where, what it means to live in a tradition, either a religious one or a family one. Like, there's an immense amount of commonality that you could map across those two songs. In fact, I think they, they make a great pair in a lot of ways, and yet those two songs were made to exist on two sides of a divide. Yeah. And there's plenty of forces policing that divide. So maybe just to, like, fast forward into this a little bit, you, I feel like, gave me a really, really thick picture of this kind of double bind that you felt you were sitting in as a, as a Christian artist trying to perform in those sort of spaces. Mm-hmm. And I think on one side you had this economic thing, and the, the, the way that that industry and that culture narrated your responsibility as an artist as opposed to some of the economic reality you felt. So mm-hmm. just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, at that time, at least in the, in the Christian music industry, there was it, it was a total... Um, the, the, the narrative that they painted was like if you had crossed over, then you had sold out, right? Like you were no longer making music for the church. You were no longer um, even like praising God with your music. And so um, the, the narrative that they had to tell was if you crossed over, you did it for financial reasons. Like that's why you did it because you could get a bigger following. You get songs on radio and you'd make millions of dollars. In actuality, like the complete opposite is true. I mean – the easiest way for you to sort of like maintain economic viability was to continue to stay in Christian music. I mean, if you are wondering uh, whether you're going to make more money playing a song or playing a show at a church where they're going to give you a guarantee, they might pay you anywhere from three or $400 on up to $3,000 or more to go and play a concert at a church, or you could go to the cat's cradle and play. <laughs> <laughs> and get a cut of the door. I mean, like, it, it was a ridiculous notion to, to say that, like, people who had left the Christian music industry were doing so for financial reasons. I mean, it, it, that's a complete farce. I mean, it was always easier to make a predictable, good living um, staying in the Christian music boundaries. So I thought that was an economic piece that I would not have imagined prior to listening you narrate it. And so talk a little bit about taking that to X church in the middle of nowhere you've never been to before and deciding what song to play on a Sunday? That's great. Yeah, that is a great question and one that I was not prepared for. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, yeah, that's great because what are you supposed to do with that? Um, I will say that you learn very, very quickly um, that if you do a certain kind of song versus a different kind of song, that you're going to sell more CDs uh, after the show. You learn uh, what kinds of music people are going to, you know, come up to you afterwards and say, "Oh, that song really blessed me. Thank you so much." And it is not to say that that is not legitimate. It's not to say that that's not real. It's not to say that people didn't have real aesthetic and even religious experiences. But it is to say that if you pay attention, you could start to figure out what kind of language you needed to use, what kind of banter you needed to use between songs. Um, and it became a, just a second nature thing. It was not, for me or for other artists that I knew and toured with, it, was, it really was not like a, an effort to be manipulative. It was just that you figured out, if I go to play uh, this Bible study in Houston, Texas, 
can't remember the name of this thing. There was a, there was a big one in Houston. There was a big one in San Antonio. There was a big one in Dallas. I can't remember. Like thousands of people. Yeah, right? this yeah, is several a... thousand people. They would pay you like two or three hundred bucks to come. You'd do one song, and then you could sell CDs afterwards. And if you were smart about like what song you chose to do, and if you performed it well, like man, I remember. I remember selling like 65, 70, 75 CDs after playing one song at this Bible study just because there were so many people there. And these are relatively wealthy Christians in the state of Texas. I'm sorry to say it that way, but these are relatively well-off people who could afford to buy a different CD every week when an artist comes in at their Bible study. And those 60, 70-odd CD sales are like two or three times oh, yeah. you know, the, the guarantee yeah. that you had to play the one song. So one yeah. song, CD sales... 1500 bucks, right? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Easy. So I think that's on this very individual level. Map that up to the industry level, right? Because I think it, it's a pretty straight line up and down. That's the exact sort of discourse that you can imagine going on in a boardroom, mm-hmm. in an A&R conversation, across the board. Yeah. Yeah, this is great because this sort of becomes what I would say is sort of this third phase or third wave of Christian music where... Um, you have this sharp definition now of what's a Christian song and what's not a Christian song, what kind of song is eligible for a Dove Award and what kind of song's not eligible for a Dove Award. And you have these kind of up, these, these like upstart large Bible studies in the Deep South and, um, and eventually in the Midwest too. Um, and so you get this whole movement of like what we now think of as just worship music. You know, sure there had been music, worship music all along, Maranatha singers or whoever had been around since the seventies, but this was like when you start having guys like, um, like a Chris Tomlin or like a David Crowder or um, Matt Redman, the, these kind of guys who, um, who like they they could they could very effectively map their music onto this yeah. in a way that they were doing it very authentically. This right. is again not to yeah, not, not assuming to, crassness here. Yeah, yeah no, I'm I'm not throwing any shade on those guys. It's just to say. Um, that they're, they were able to make that transition. They were able to make that transition in a way that I could just never have done. It just yeah. didn't, for, for me, it did not work. It did not work for me. And so I think what that maps for me is like this very simple, it's, it, it is not an equation that going to an evangelical college, listening to Christian music, so I'm listening to people talk about it. You don't get the sense from consuming that culture, the degree to which economic safety equals constrained artistic boundaries, mm-hmm. Right. I don't, I don't think that that maps intuitively, for, at least for a lot of listeners. So it's that sort of space, to just fast forward a little bit, that you listen to this uh, Counting Crows album. Right? Yeah. You listen, and this Round Here song that you want to give us felt in some way like, a, like an explosion of that in some way. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, this album, uh, this is the first Counting Crows album that came out uh, when I was a freshman in college at UNC, 1993. Um, and this is one of those rare albums, at least for me it's rare, that I find one that continues to grow with me. Like it meant something really, really powerful to me then. It meant something much more powerful by two years out from graduation. It meant even more to me ten years later. It meant... Um, it meant the world to me when I went through a divorce 10 years ago. Like, this is the kind of um, song and the kind of album that just absolutely blew my mind. I did not know that you could do the kinds of things that Adam Duritz does lyrically in this song until I heard this song. Um, I just didn't know it was even possible. 
And there's there's something you said. You said like this this song struck you as true. Yes. Right. Yes. As opposed to a song that was designed to tell a certain sort of truth, this song was just true. Yep. And it it did not fit, nor nor was it ready to play by any set of like industry rules that you've been. Absolutely. Introduced. I mean, you could you could say certain things about sort of this rise of the. I'm a Gen Xer, and you can say certain things about the rise of the Gen Xers and. And Nirvana and Pearl Jam, who I know was a big, one of Brandon's favorites, that 10 album was really great. Um, so you can certainly say that like this all existed in the same sonic space, existed in the same cultural space um, of these sort of disaffected um, young, you know, 20-year-olds and early 30s, you know, who were writing this kind of music. Um, you might say somebody who hated this stuff would have said like, oh, they're whining or complaining, but, but it is some effort to really grapple with uh, life and life's disappointments. Um, I was also going through a major depressive phase at that point in my life, and so there were certain things about this music that, for me, really latched on to something and gave it a voice that you could sing about something. You could sing about characters I didn't know you could sing about. You know, um, Rich is talking about, the quotes I read earlier, Rich is talking about the poor and the brokenhearted, and, and, and Rich, to some degree, is singing about, about that, but at the same time, he's not allowed to sing about some of that in the industry he's chosen to be a part of, you know? But somebody like Adam Duritz from Counting Crows can come along and he can write a song about whatever the hell he wants to, you know? Yeah. yeah. So let's hear this song. Parks your car outside of my house and 
takes her clothes off and says she is close to understanding Jesus. And she knows she's more than just a little misunderstood. And she has trouble acting normal when she's nervous round here. We're carving out our try and bring this home by asking you to do something really hard, which I think you, you probably could have spent your whole hour on the song, but I think it's really probably clear to most of us why you might not want to identify as a Christian musician at this point. What might be less clear to some people is why you do want to identify as a musician in a church community, mm-hmm. um, and I think it'll be clear to some people and maybe less clear to others, but I wonder if, if 
somehow in this song, there's something about about this song, the trueness of it, that what do those two things have to do together? That song feels very confessional to me. Um, it, it feels like the voice of someone um, who is brokenhearted, like Rich said. It feels like the voice of someone um, who has a really different story to tell than maybe I had been hearing uh, before I came across that album. Um, if I found myself really uncomfortable singing songs in, in certain uh, venues in certain churches or having to sing certain kinds of song, this community is one for me that I feel like I can do that song and it's okay to do it. Um, I was listening back to some, um, to some podcasts um, the other day to, um, anyway, it doesn't matter why, but I was, I was listening back to some other old podcasts and, and I remembered that at the end of our first Peter uh, series, uh, when Tim and Molly were leading the last dialogue, and I was listening back to it and realizing, you know, before I introduced the, the last song, I called the Apostle Peter a jackass. You did. Like, I actually said that, I read the passage and said, like, wow, this dude's a real jackass. And, like, I don't know many churches that I could do that in. You know, I don't know many places that I could explore that idea, even it's if accurate. it's... Whether it's an, an idea I agree with or don't agree with or I'm still playing with or whatever, um, it, it feels like this is a space that I can, that I can do that, that art can be art um, and ideas can be ideas that are still forming and still in debate and that we can come together and love one another and work with one another and question one another and question ourselves and all that. Yeah, I mean, if it, it, we could also talk a long time about this, but you know, a few years ago we drafted this sort of art philosophy statement to try and get at you know, some of what we're up to as a community artistically. And I think that, that closes with this idea that one of the things art does for us, we feel, is engage us redemptively in the world. And it doesn't do that by showing us golden shining truths. It does that by inviting us into lament and inviting us into difficult spaces and then somehow maybe trying to imagine a way out of those. And I feel like this, this song is, is kind of one of those sort of songs. Yeah, and it, it's, it's a song that does not, it doesn't take anything and put a bow on it. It doesn't wrap up anything. This is a song that you walk away from with way more questions than you entered the experience of hearing this song with. And that part to me feels very much like what we see Jesus do time after time in the Gospels when we see, you know, like a guy, somebody comes to Jesus and says, you know, like, you know, what is, you know, what does it take for me to be, to get into heaven? What, is, what does it take for me to get into heaven? And it should be like a simple answer, right? You say this prayer, you do this thing, you read your scriptures, whatever. You, these are the things you do. And instead Jesus answers him and he says, well, once upon a time there was a farmer. <laughs> it's like, come on, dude. Can't just, like, this is a simple question. Can't you give a simple answer? And No, he doesn't. He resists it time after time after time. And so that's something that I'm really drawn to in music is, is music that has us ask hard questions, music that doesn't, that doesn't always resolve, that doesn't go back to the root chord at the end, you know, metaphorically. And so it's probably fitting that you wrote a song called Almost. Yeah, which I was thinking, because of given the time, we may not have time to do it, which is okay with me. I've done it before. No, I think you should do it. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Because I feel like at the end of a journey, right, and this, yeah, it feels like a good song to play here. All right, thanks.
So if you are thinking like, so what have you been up to musically, you know, for the last few years, if you haven't been part of Christian music, is, is like, this is certainly a song uh, that I think I could write and write honestly. Um, and I have no idea who, who would like this song or who would decide they wanted to buy a song like this or uh, listen to a song like this, but it's a song that feels honest to me uh, and to sort of what my journey has been along the way and what my journey has been like the last several years.
So um, one little tiny snippet. Um, first met Mark on Ash Wednesday, Mayus Way's very first Ash Wednesday. I don't know that we were really sure what we were going to do that night. Uh, our lead artist at the time said, bringing a friend along. And it was one of the most, I mean, Ash Wednesday is not a puppies and balloons holiday, right? And it's one that is, and when you're starting a new church with, you know, 20 friends, you're like, okay, this is, how are we going to do this? Because a lot of people had come from spaces where words of lament were always kind of mitigated with, but it gets good really fast. Um, and Mark played this amazingly magical night of powerful words of lament that fight against hope without canceling out hope. And I do remember that night going, wow, this guy, it would be amazing to do church with that guy. And uh, as fate would have it, uh, we were able to do that. I consider Mark uh, not a friend. I consider him a great friend. And it's been really, really fun to kind of journey with you, Mark. To, there's such a great story that I hope you get to tell more and more about kind of your work and your art. And that story got amazingly beautiful and fantastic in a great way with Katrina in it. So uh, it's just a, um, it's a, it's a great time. We're excited about the birth of Soren the Conqueror, as I've named him. Young, uh, young Viking child that he might be. Uh, but um, but uh, anyway, thank you, Mark, for doing that. In terms of inviting us for the, uh, to the table tonight, um, one of the things that, that struck me, and it strikes me as something that maps, as Ben would say, very powerfully in this community. As, uh, as a college student at Carolina, you were starting to buck against a, a binary that was one that you could hardly have ever imagined yourself in that, but you were already playing it out with your CD rack and wondering about that. And you were wondering, where are the spaces for honesties and complexities? And it seems like real faith and real hope and real tangling with a God that we don't understand typically happens not in the CD racks that are clearly marked, but in the contentious space between things that have been clearly marked by others. And one of the things that I think is deeply beautiful about what we strive to do as a community and what we strive to do every week at the table is to live in a community that is not boundaried by a certain binaries. So as Emmaus Way, we are, we're gay, we're straight. We're, we're men, we're women, we're people who come like Ben and I from deeply fundamentalist backgrounds. Uh, we have leaders like Molly who thinks... What in the hell? heck has gone on with you folks' lives? We, we've come from really different spaces and different stories and different narratives. And what it means is that no one here owns or controls or is the owner of what it looks like to mature and grow in faith and to grow in meaning and to know what God is doing redemptively. We organize politically. We organize socially. We live in a real way understanding that we don't have the answer when we start. And binaries tend to do that. They tend to mark something as clearly good and something that should clearly be avoided. And for us, that our absence of a binary life um, is very, very most dramatically acted out each week at the table. Because whatever category you would place yourself in, in any of those, life, faith, gender, political, sexual, uh, the employment boundaries that you would play in is what we want to do is say none of those prevent you from, from coming to this table together. Uh, there's no faith identification. There's nothing that says you can't be in this space. And we know that when we perform that, 
something incredibly real happens. The, the, the realness that Mark described in that song, Round Here, which I love that album, and I've never looked at the lyrics as powerfully as I have this week. What an incredible song. So that's what we're performing this week, as we perform every week. We come to this table, we serve each other, we break bread, we pour wine and juice for each other, we say uh, perhaps the body of Christ, uh, or we just embrace each other and greet each other and, and, and accept each other with the lives that we've brought to that table, knowing that we're forming something in that that in some ways fits very beautifully in Mark's song, Almost. We never feel like we've arrived at this table, but we're always building towards something very hopefully. So I invite you now to our table to serve each other, to greet each other, to hug each other, embrace, uh, tell stories of pains, uh, tell your best story of hope, and, and be the people of God in, in every way. Join us at the table.